The great philosopher Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Looking back only results in learning for people who have that time to think. And many of us are so busy with day-to-day -day demands that we rarely have time to reflect. And that's why we started What I Wish I Knew. It's for those moments when you realize that just a bit of insight might have come in handy if you had it in advance. I'm Mike Irwin. And I'm Simon Dorr. So we talk with people from all walks of life, from startup entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes to weekend warriors, from artists and to designers, to even engineers who became designers. From those who dream to those who dream then actually do. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble and each have truly incredible learnings. In What I Wish I Knew, they share these lessons with you. Well, welcome to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. We're uh, very excited today because we have Professor Patrick Ledden with us. Um, Dr. Ledden is a professor at Vanderbilt University where he's an expert on corporate strategy, negotiation, marketing, and he teaches courses on crisis leadership. But his background isn't strictly in academia. And in fact, probably the, the greater portion of his life has been spent in various leadership roles across a wide range of organizations. He was an officer in the US Army in the famed 82nd Airborne Division, which has some incredible history behind it as well, which I think he can share as too. He was a consultant at KPMG. And then he partnered with his wife to create one of the fastest growing um, companies in, in America with Wedgwood Consulting Group, which they later then sold. Um, both he and his wife are now professors at, uh, at Vanderbilt, and they also run a consulting practice called Leaden Group. Um, he's author of several books, and his most recent one, or his new one, is called The Five-Week Leadership Challenge, which we're going to love hearing about today. So, Patrick, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me today. So, Patrick, what's your story? What's my story? That's always the question, right? We love to hear each other's stories. I think stories are really important. Um, you covered a lot of the, the highlights, I guess, the, the resume high points of my story. But yeah, I started off my career in the military, actually enlisted in the National Guard in Illinois, coming out of high school because youngest of five kids, south side of Chicago, that's how I could get to go to college, was to join the National Guard. And I joined the National Guard and went off to basic training in uh, military police school. I thought I was going to be a police officer. And then I went, came back from that, went to college, and along the way finished ROTC, and then went on active duty in the Army. And the Army said, oh, you went to military police school with us. You majored in criminal justice. We'll put you in the infantry. That's just how the Army works sometimes. So they put me in the infantry because um, it made no sense in the moment. But I got into the infantry. I went through infantry uh, officer school. I went to ranger school. I'd already gone to airborne school one summer during college. And they sent me off, like you mentioned, Mike, to the 82nd Airborne Division. And I spent um, the good part of over five years or so um, jumping out of perfectly good airplanes in the 82nd Airborne Division. And I was fortunate to kind of cut my teeth in leadership roles in the 82nd. So I was an infantry uh, platoon leader, infantry officer, platoon leader, uh, infantry company XO, executive officer. And then also I was a company commander in the 82nd. And then I left the 82nd and went to uh, KPMG, as you mentioned, spent a few years there. And then my wife and I, uh, who were living in Ohio at the time, we decided to start a project for a client on the side that grew into a business. And sometimes you know you're starting a business and other times you think you just have a little side hustle going and it grows over time. And over about 11 years, we grew the business to um, four offices and four offices in a few different states and a really great team of people, uh, great client list. And somebody came along and offered to buy the business from us. And it was one of those mm. moments where like, okay, I didn't see that coming, but they made me an officer that made maybe an offer that made perfectly good sense at the time. So we, we took that offer. We decided to pivot. Um, along the way, when I was working on all, uh, the business, I'd gone back to school and picked up my PhD from University of Kentucky. So I um, decided I'm going to go full-time in academia and uh, went to Vanderbilt University. I've been there ever since. Wow. So, I, you know, there's a lot that went on in that one. So just to kind of unpack it a little bit. Tell me about it. I'm if, tired. <laughs> if you... If we were talking to the 18-year-old Patrick Ledden, would he be surprised what he's become? Uh, he'd probably be shocked by what he's become. I mean, the 18-year-old Patrick Ledden wasn't necessarily the best student, for example, but you often hear like somebody say, I wasn't the best student. How do you end up being you know, a professor at a top 15 university? Um, also, I remember when I was 18 years old, I couldn't wait to get out of school. I couldn't imagine wanting to be back in school full time. But, you know, times change over time. So certainly that. And I think the 18-year-old Patrick Ledden, um, you know, was pr 
pro probably just didn't know all the opportunities that were going to unfold over the course of time or the decisions he's going to make. So, yeah, I think that he'd be a little surprised in some ways. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and Patrick, when, when you moved in, in the kind of army piece, you, you kind of went and, and dotted or gave us a dot of, of moving here to there to um, um, everywhere. I suspect even in those early days, uh, there was what the, the germination or a seed of, of development of leadership there in terms of, you know, understanding how it worked and maybe even practicing some skills along the way. Uh, absolutely, Simon. It's interesting when Mike asked me about the 18-year-old Patrick Ledden, that 18-year-old Patrick Ledden was very much in a transition phase. I mean, there's these inflection points in your life. And up until that point, that 18-year-old Patrick Ledden probably wasn't the best student or the most focused individual. But that initial military mm. experience when I joined the National Guard at 17 and then went to basic training, you know, with the drill sergeants and all those type of things. And I started going through all that and realized mm. I'm kind of good at this. For whatever reason, this level of discipline was helpful to me. So I was, I was kind of good at the military thing and I started to excel a bit. So because of that, the more, mm. the better you get at it, the more you feel good about it, the more you invest in it. And then the more opportunities come just like anything else in life. And in the military, unlike in the business world, there was a study that was done and published in Harvard Business Review where they looked at 17,000 leaders um, and they asked them, when was the time that you received your first formal leadership role? And the answer was 30 in business, 30 years, 30 years old is the first time I get a formal leadership role. But 42 years old is the first time I get my first formal leadership training. That's a 12 year gap, right? Where you're learning something, but you're learning it often, um, you know, by banging your knees and stumbling a lot and doing it at the, um, you know, impacting your people along the way. So from that perspective, I didn't have to wait till I was 30 years old. Right. They, they sent me to some training early on. Some might argue that U.S. Army Ranger School is some of the best leadership development training you can get in the world. And for me, it was. I mean, 68 days of eat one meal a day, walk around with something on your back for 17 hours a day in the woods and um, never knowing when you're going to get a leadership role thrown at you can be pretty challenging. And it taught me a lot about leading and working with people. So yeah, I would say I was very fortunate early on to get a lot of leadership experience. But that doesn't mean that you have to go to the military or go to a military school to get leadership experience. You just kind of have to sometimes poke your head up and look around and say, where are the opportunities to lead? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that kind of gap though, Patrick, because you know, what we're talking about essentially is people could be almost 20 years into their careers before they really get any training to be, to be a leader. Do you see that as kind of one of the big misses, if you will, of, of corporate life that leadership is so important and yet it's so under, under-resourced? You know, I think it is. And we certainly have times, if you think about the ups and downs of business and you consider, you know, the COVID situation we've been going through and the, what that's, how that's impacted the economy, but at a very specific scale, like the person running the store down the street is trying to figure out every day how to advance the business and keep the doors open. So everybody's kind of felt that struggle. I think one thing that happens is that training and development is an easier investment to make in people when times are good, but it's often the first line item that's removed when times are tough. And we've gone through some really tough times. In fact, I was talking to a leader the other day from a company who said over the last year or so with COVID and they were very, um, they're, they're kind of in the uh, entertainment space and hospitality space. They have a lot of frontline employees. She said over the course of the last year or so, we have relied heavily on our people to go up and ask strangers to put masks on and to wear masks themselves and to constantly be cleaning and to do all these other things. And at the same time, we've gotten leaner and leaner and leaner in our number of resources on the front line. And we've spent over a year or so leaning on our folks to carry us through this tough time and making no investment in them. We've got to figure out how to start turning the corner on that and beginning to make investments. So yeah, I think that there's a, there's a missed opportunity. Now, one thing I think it's really interesting, and I was... I was talking to somebody who wrote a software program around how to navigate your way through Walt Disney World. And what he was saying was that, and it kind of makes sense, like early on in Walt Disney World, you had the people who worked at the park, the amusement park, who knew the best ways to navigate the Magic Kingdom. And you'd come in and they'd give you a map and they would tell you, here's the best way to go through the park. Well, then over time, People started with the internet, people started sharing information like go this way, make a right hand turn, you know, or they might say, everybody goes to the right, make sure you go to the left type of thing and you'll get the shorter line. And they give you all this different information. And then nowadays, because of people able to uh, model crowds and how crowds move, 
and the ability with Disney to provide you an app, you don't have to rely on an expert to tell you how to go through the park, or you don't have to do it 10 times to figure out what works best for you. You can all of a sudden crowdsource all this information and decide what's best for you. And when I think about that and try to apply it to leadership development, it means you don't have to wait for your company to come and, you know, kind of say you're chosen to go to a course. You don't have to do any of that. You can start developing yourself right away. And there's so many resources available on the internet to do it. I think it can be very beneficial for folks to just lean into it. Yeah, it's a powerful lesson. And as a dad of, um, of one who um, just finished grad school a year ago and now is in consulting with Deloitte, I mean, one of the things I talked to her about is the, the importance of really taking personal responsibility for that part of development. Of course, you know, big companies have their own development programs, but what's your, what's your, your viewpoint then on people that really at any stage of career, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the old way was sort of a paternalistic structure of I wait until the opportunity and I keep my head down and someone will look after me. And it sounds like what you're saying is a bit different from that, which is, no, you need to kind of raise your, raise your hand, raise your head and figure it out yourself. You know, my father worked for 36 years for the Illinois Bell Phone Company. And of those 36 years, he, 31 of them, he never had an absence. So I remember he had like this, you know, one year he broke his arm or something, he missed work or whatever it might be. For 36 years, didn't, you know, have an absence and, and rose from kind of pulling cable underground for the first 20 some years to uh, a, a leadership role kind of in a regional office, right? Great career. Um, and certainly if you asked 18 year old Jack Ledden, where he thought he'd be, that's my father's name, where he thought he'd be at the end of the career, he would be amazed too. And I think many of us are, right? That's a question that many of us learn things that we didn't know we'd know, like you said, as the premise of your whole conversation. Um, but when he retired from the phone company, they gave him a gold watch, which when you think about organizations, that's often we think like you retire and they give you the gold watch. But guys, they gave him the gold watch. They didn't give him the band. And I just remember seeing that and thinking, He's got to go out and buy his own band after 36 years to put onto that gold watch. And it started to rewire my mind about what does loyalty look like and what does commitment look like and uh, you know, how long do you want to spend with an organization or whatever it might be. In my career, I've been at about five organizations. Uh, the generation um, you know, younger than me, they're going to be at 10 or 15 or whatever the number might be. And I think it's really easy to, um, and kind of lazy, quite frankly to sit and point at another generation and say, well, look at, they don't have the same level of commitment we have, or they don't have this, this, that, or the other. And the reality is they have more opportunities. They have more visibility of what's going on. If you were in their shoes, you'd be making the same type of choices too. And if you don't think you would, you're probably fooling yourself. Because as, as things change and ebb and flow, um, our viewpoints change. And I think it's really critical to kind of keep our finger on the pulse of that as leaders. Mm. What, um... Again, just circle a little bit back then to as you left the, the army, as you said, and, and you must have learned a ton of stuff and, and practically practiced it, as you, as, as you alluded to. What, just a little bit of the, of the intersection, of, because it brought you in, into, the, in, into the more of the leadership and the consulting world. You know, what and how did you get into the space of KPMG? What did that look like? You know, you're, you're moving out of, you know, from what I read and hear, you know, the army life, the habits, the environment is so, is so, so different. What, what was that like for you and, uh, and why did you do it? Where did you focus your particular uh, uh, consulting efforts? That's a good question, Simon. So kind of going back to that time, at, at that point, I was in my late 20s. We just had our second child. And, um, you know, you're kind of thinking like, okay, where do I want to go next in my career? Or what am I going to do? And for good or bad, either way, this is just the way I'm kind of wired. I have this challenge sometimes with myself where it's, if I'm listening to a, a song on a radio station and I go, I like this song, my natural inclination is to go, but what else is playing on the other stations? So I have to kind of watch and temper that a little bit myself. Because sometimes it's like, no, stay in there and hang with this song because it's a really good song. And other times it's like, yeah, go ahead and check. You can always come back and listen to the end of that song, if that makes sense. So that was at when those points in my life where I was saying, you know, am I ready to change stations and do something else? Because I was six years or so, a little over six years into the military as far as full-time in the military. Um, if you go on to the next schooling, you're kind of going to commit to it probably at least another three or four years. At that point, you're 10 to 12 years in, you might as well just stay until 20. That's kind of where my mind was wired at the time. Again, I'm 20 some years old thinking about it. So I decided to um, kind of give it a shot at the mil outside the military and see what life would be like. So I came out of the military and just so happens, you know, networks really do matter. 
and a friend of mine was working at uh, KPMG Consulting, and he said, you should come over and interview with KPMG. And I'm like, well, what do you do there? I mean, what is consulting? What does that even mean? Um, and he said, well, we wear a suit every day and you go to meetings. And I was, I, at that point I was sold. I get to wear a suit every day. That sounds nice. And I get to go to meetings. Okay, that's interesting. So I went in and did the interview and I looked around. It seemed like a nice place to work and people seemed fairly friendly and it looked like they were carrying themselves professionally, which I kind of found whatever professionally means these days. But I thought, okay, that was kind of interesting to me. So I took the assignment. What I didn't realize after I joined the firm, especially back in, this would have been back around late 90s, at KPMG, it wasn't um, what it is now. It was a much more of a partnership structure and each partner kind of had their own little kingdom. So depending upon who you were assigned to, you were in a very different version of KPMG. So I came in and I was assigned to uh, one leader in one corner office and some of my friends were assigned to another leader in another corner office. And I started to see how their experience was very different than my experience, even though we were in the same organization. My leader was um, a partner who was very, uh, had very short fuse. We get very frustrated. I was, I was fortunate that I took over a project. I didn't even take over a project. When I joined KPMG, I was on a project with one other person and we were a sub underneath another team of people from a different company. We were subcontracting. And uh, over the course of the next three years or so, it went from us being the two people on the project underneath the other company to the project being 38 people. The other company was gone and I was running the project. So I had like a really good, and there's a lot we could unpack in there, but I had a really good run there, right? And we were billing out about $12 million a year at the time, around 2000. So we had a really good year going. I would still get yelled at every time I went into my partner's office to give him the monthly status report, right? He was the kind who would like throw water bottles at people and just get really frustrated. And the boss you would think about in, 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 in you know, movies or something. And then somebody down the other hallway was having a completely different experience with their boss. And the reason I say that is because we often talk about culture and act like the whole organization is in this one cultural experience. And the reality is, reality is there's little microcosms of that going on. And if we don't figure out how to make sure that leaders align their values to what the organization really cares about, then the people below them sometimes suffer or soar based upon that. So I, just, I think what that showed me was just the ability to influence people outside of the military where they don't have to look at you because of the rank on your collar you're you're influencing them in many other ways and that was a really good experience for me yeah so talk about that a little bit patrick and you know i think what you raise is sort of the distinction between kind of organizational leadership and um you know individual if you if you had to kind of paint some some characteristics of good organizational leadership or what that really means because i think you know, I think if we were to go and we were open to, to, to click online and look at the annual reports of, you know, major companies, we look at the values and we look at the mission and we look at all this stuff. And there's very little, to be fair, that we could really disagree with. I mean, they're all kind of, you know, good citizenship factors, if you will, and that kind of thing. And yet, if I would imagine if we were to talk to people who were either inside the organization or alums of that organization, we might get a, a picture that's a little bit different from the reality of that. And why do you feel like that's so common where, you know, the rhetoric is so different from the reality? Uh, that's a great question. I think if we could all solve that, we'd be in really good shoes. But I think there's some things we can look at for sure. First of all, Mike, you're, you're absolutely right. I can, I've been in enough of the um, executive offices and companies and organizations talking about the culture of the business. And I've had those situations where you tell the, where you ask the question to the CEO or a senior leader, you say, Tell me about the culture of your organization. And you all can imagine you're in that moment. She or he wheels around, they kind of spin on their chair, they point to the value statement on the wall and they go, that's what we're all about. And you can look at that value statement and heck, it's, it's, it's almost generic, right? You look at the list of things, it's you know, pick one off a list of 20 type of thing because they're gonna have up there collaboration, communication, trust, professionalism, loyalty, maybe something about um, entrepreneurial spirit. You know, and then at the bottom, they usually have something like, and have fun doing all of the above type of, type of statements. And my answer usually back to them is that, no, that's great, I love that, that's wonderful language. Must, must have taken a lot of time to get those words right and all those type of things, but tell me about your culture. Because as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you can tell me this is what it is, but what's really going on out there? And you might say, well, what's culture? Well, culture is kind of, um, it's how the majority of people behave the majority of the time. It's the written and unwritten systems and norms of an organization. That's what your culture is. It's the language of your organization. And you have to look at those things to say, okay, what's our culture really like? 
In other words, if I say we really care about collaboration, but I see everybody independently working, everybody saying, I've got this, everybody trying to have this Herculean effort and go ta-da and show what they've done, collaboration's really not happening there necessarily, right? Or if it's about integrity, but I hear people talking one way to their face and another way behind their back, that's not integrity, right? So you kind of you have to think, what's we, what are we really getting um, from the culture? So I have uh, some friends at a company called Franklin Covey that I've had a chance to work with for many years. And I've actually done some events for them where I talk about what is culture with their clients. And one thing that I think they've framed really nicely is what are the outcomes of an effective culture? Because that's kind of a way to like reverse engineer your way into saying, okay, do we have a really good organization and what can we do? And what they teach is they say there's, there's four consistent outcomes of a winning culture. The first one is a winning culture makes a distinctive contribution, which basically means if you have a group of people doing a particular service or providing a particular product to a group of customers, and then you take that group of people out that are doing that service and you replace them with a completely different group of people that on paper look equally qualified, what's missing? And if you say at the end of the day, you go, nah, it's all pretty much the same, then I would say that first group did not really have a distinctive culture. Or they weren't really making a distinctive contribution. However, if you said, well, just the way the customers feel about interacting with them or just how the employees um, go that extra step or do a little bit more for them or the contribution they make to the community, those things are missing. Then you go, okay, there's something distinctive about that team of people when they work, they're creating a distinctive contribution. And I know it sounds like lofty rhetoric, but if you step back from it and think like, what does our team do that other teams just wouldn't do if they were in our shoes? What's the unique thing we bring to it? That's one outcome. The second one is, a really good culture creates engaged employees. Makes sense, right? Now, I'm, I'm not Pollyanna. I mean, work is work some days and not everybody's walking into work on every Monday morning, you know, high five in the hallway or even turn the Zoom screen on without a big cup of coffee, you know, handy. Um, but like the employees care, they're passionate, they argue and not just to be difficult or contrarian, they argue because they're trying to find a better solution, right? So you've engaged employees. They have loyal customers and we can go on and on about loyal customers. Fred Reicheld talks a lot about loyal customers, loyal customers in his book, Ultimate Question, and talks about, hey, if you have loyal customers, that's a lot better than satisfied because mm -hmm. loyal customers come back, they buy more, they tell their friends to come and, and they give you feedback, which is really critical. And then the, the fourth thing, so I have distinctive contribution, I have uh, engaged employees, I have loyal customers. And then the last thing is they deliver sustained superior results. Mm. I mean, you can't, the other stuff sounds great and it's kind of like a fun party. We all get together, but you actually have to deliver the goods. I mean, Mike, you said you, were a, you had been a CFO before. You got to deliver the numbers. I mean, you've got to deliver mm. stuff to the street. So the ability to do all of those things is really critical. So oftentimes I'll have students say, well, you know, Professor Ludden, should I go to this company or that company? And everybody, and I'll say like, well, what do you think? And they'll say, well, everybody's telling me I should check out the culture of the company. And I'll say, well, how do you do that? And they're like, well, we go to the website and read their mission statement and their vision statement. And I see what they contribute to. And, I, and they're trying to get their hands on it. But like you said, Mike, they're seeing all the same stuff and go to one to the next, the next, the next, right? Um, so really you got to get deeper than that and see, okay, what are some of the results or outcomes of the organization and work your way back into it? So Patrick, this is a really, really big question because, and, and topic, yeah. As Mike rightly said, many, many generic words, names attached to many businesses around the world. How, how do you, you know, what, what's your, your, your thinking and logic to how you, how you decode culture and, you know, what gets measured gets done. So if you're saying, you know, this is the culture that's, that's frothing to the top, that's making it effective, you know, how does a business look at that, whether it's a, a senior leader or somebody looking at themselves? That, that's the first question. And I think that the second question I've got is when that, culminates in positive output, I guess, is what you're, you're referring to. You know, what's the dichotomy of different teams? I've, I've worked in many companies where different functions <laughs> can be driving, you know, they all hold the same banner, as Mike said and you said, but they can be driving different themes, different ways, focuses on different areas of, of what you could describe as, as, as positive or even negative culture. Well, kind of attacking that last part there on functions, Simon, that's a really um, critical thing to think through in your organization, because as oftentimes people move up through functions of an organization, occasionally like Mike, you move into different functions, but you're kind of a unicorn in that regard to some extent, the, the way you're able to move for different functions. But somebody will go from 
you know, a sales role to leading a sales team, maybe they'll bridge over to marketing and then maybe work their way up to VP of marketing, but they'll kind of stay in that customer um, focus side. Other people might work in the operations side and work their way up that way. So I think one thing about functions is, is you have to be careful as you're moving up the ranks in an organization, if you're kind of going up the hierarchical structure of an organization, there is a point where you have to pivot in your mind as a leader and say, it's not just all about the function I have. Mm. It's about a broader organization. And people have said it in different ways, but you know, you sit down at the senior leadership seat at the table, you sit down at the senior leadership table and you have a seat at the table now, your job is not to defend the marketing team's budget. Your, your job is not to defend everything the marketing team does. Your job is to recognize that team you're on now as an executive is your most important team. And you have to figure out how do we best serve that team, which might mean sometimes I give up resources or I give up things or other times might mean I take other things on because I'm caring about the, I'm caring about the direction of the entire organization. So that's one thing is to kind of think your way through as you're going through it. Another thing around the cultural aspect, if I'm looking out at the culture and I, however you want to define it, I kind of gave you some examples like I look at what people are doing or I look at the systems we have in place and I go, ah, this isn't really reflective of what I really envision we'd like to be. You know, the question goes, okay, where do I start? And how do I start kind of unpacking that? And I think the, you can look at like what Jim Collins said when he talked about level five leaders. He said a level five leader is one when they see something wrong, they don't start pointing their finger at everyone through the window and saying that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. But they actually look in the mirror and say, what have I done to contribute to that? And I think of a story um, a few years ago, I was asked, and my whole career hasn't been military, but this is just a mil another military story. I was asked to go up to the Pentagon and meet with the senior leader in charge of one of the reserve parts of the US military. Okay, so you may have Army and Navy and Air Force and each has a reserve component where people do uh, a couple um, weeks in the summer and a couple days a month putting on the uniform and going to work. And this person was a senior enlisted person over tens of thousands of people wow. in one of those reserve components. And as we sit down to talk about the situation, he starts to share data with us related to the behavior of those people. So he had tens of thousands of people and he would show me a chart and on the chart he would say, in the past, this is how many DUIs, driving under the influence incidents we had among all these people, whether they were in uniform that day or not, they could have done it on a Thursday or whatever. But this is how many we had and you show, as you might imagine, the chart was going in the wrong direction, right? They were getting, having more of case, these cases. Or he said, domestic violence. You know, we used to have this number, now we're seeing this number. So he turns to me and he says, so, he said, what can you do to help us fix it? Which in my mind, I'm thinking, you're asking me, how do I fix the behavior of tens of thousands of people spread out across the entire United States who only put the uniform on part-time? That's what he's asking me. So I kind of said back to, okay, then I asked him that. I said, so what you're asking me is this? And he said, after I processed it in my head, I asked him, he said, yes. I said, well, the answer is you don't try to tackle the behavior of tens of thousands of people who only put the uniform on part-time. If you do that, you'll never make any progress on it. You'll get little pockets that'll move in the right direction. What you do is you focus on, in their case, I said the top 100, which was a number at the time I just pulled out of thin air. I was just kind of thinking like real quickly, what well, might be a, a representative sample. And the point of that is because, you know, leaders create culture. And Ram Sharan, who's a professor up at Harvard, he, he talks about this. He says, you know, if you want to change the behavior of the organization, you change the behavior of the leaders. So then when you look in the mirror, you say to yourself, okay, what am I doing that's causing these things to happen? Because your people are constantly looking at you and seeing how you're modeling different behaviors. So kind of a long answer, but I think it's really critical to recognize two things. One is that your role as a leader, especially in formal roles, it changes over time as you progress through the organization. And secondly, as soon as you take on a formal role of leadership, people are looking at you. But as we've talked about earlier, I think we're all leaders. So as soon as you choose to stand up, people look at you. In fact, you probably can imagine in your own careers or people listening to this podcast can say there's been times right maybe even on the team they're on right now that they have the team leader formal but then they have this other person that everybody kind of watches because that person seems to model the right behaviors they're influencing people uh, fascinating so patrick i want to throw a maybe it's a belief that i have at you and just kind of see how you react to it and and i i believe that humility is a superpower and the reason that I believe that is because in my consulting and just in my career, the most effective leaders I've come across are the people that, that reach their, their leadership position um, 
truly because of merit. And it wasn't strictly like subject matter expertise or even relationships. It was because they were just really good at understanding people and how to work with them. And some of that involved forsaking their own ego in the place of thinking about, okay, how, I, how can I as a leader be more helpful to my team? And part of that is, is recognizing that it's, all, that, that it's not all about me. And yet that's not universal. There, I've met plenty of CEOs who have enormous egos and I almost feel bad for some of the people that are part of their organizations because they really have to cover for them. But do you, do you think there's merit in that or do you feel like, or what is it about you know, truly effective leadership that stands out? Well, yeah, I would agree that humility is a critical critical component. You know, when I was writing this book, The Five-Week Leadership Challenge, I start off talking about a story. And actually the whole book is stories. It's different leadership stories and experiences and helping people to, to do that. And the reason I wrote the book that way is because somebody told me when I was in a conference in China and stepping up on a stage, after I was done with the presentation, he walked up to me. This is somebody I really respected. Like his, his person has had stages everywhere in the world. They're just great. Um, people like love their books and all these type of things. And he said to me, where do you get all the stories? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you just tell a lot of stories in your presentations. And I, and I, I really struggle with that sometimes. And I'm, get, I'm getting to your point about humility because I think stories are a great way to convey lessons and experiences. But sometimes we don't have, we tell the stories because we wanna make it all about us, right? And other times we tell the stories because the story is a vehicle to help people write their own story. So from my perspective, even when it comes to like writing a book or talking about different examples and things, I'm always trying to like think to myself, why am I telling this story? Or why am I sharing this idea? Is it to make myself feel good or look good? Or is it to use it as a vehicle for somebody else to do something? So I have a tagline in my own head around the book. I always say, use my stories to write your story type of thing. So my point is that, you know, if you're standing up and you're always talking and you're never listening to your people and you always think you have the answer and you're gonna have them do it the way you want to and it's all about you and it's all about, you know, uh, just like puffing your chest out and saying how wonderful you are, you're, you're missing the point of leadership altogether in my opinion. Uh, thankfully, people like Brene Brown have been talking so much about vulnerability. Well, it's hard to be vulnerable if you're not a bit humble, right? And those kind of go hand in hand in my mind because being vulnerable, as she would say, is really brave and bold but it takes a fair amount of humility to go, let me tell you about the things I screwed up in life. But that's the way you tell a story in ways that help people. So I think that, you know, you're right, humility, I hadn't framed it this way, but it is a superpower. Mike, I'm probably gonna steal that phrase going forward a little bit, but I'll make sure I give you credit. But it is, it is a superpower because ultimately, and I guess it looks at, you look at what's your definition of leadership? Like, why do you see yourself choosing to lead? From my experience, I kind of latched onto the definition of leadership as leadership is seeing the worth and potential in someone and speaking it to them so clearly that they start to see it in themselves. That's leadership, right? And that's not my definition. That's Stephen R. Covey wrote that definition years ago, but if I could see the worth and potential in somebody. Well, first of all, that means I got to set myself aside and try to tap into what is their worth and potential? What's in them? Because sometimes they don't even see it and then help them bring it to the forefront. Patrick, you met astounding people and leaders over the years, I'm absolutely certain. What's, what's your take on, you know, we talk about a, a leader's born or made, you know, and it's, and it's, it's truly a corny phrase, but is, it, is there some merit in, A, those leaders and, and, and leading yourself, you know, um, and being a leader of the team? Is there a merit in thinking some of that might be in your DNA, through your behaviours, through your family, you know, early life? You said you were the youngest of five I was the middle child I truly believe there were aspects of that that affected me um, and or is there things that not just experience wise but we can pick up and learn and become better leaders in other words those those listening think well I'm not sure I am a good leader some of that might have been intrinsic in how I was brought up but actually yeah this this is an interesting podcast and, and what Patrick's leading to is this particular suggestion to for me to think about? Well, I do think leadership's a skill. And I do think that there are some people who may have a natural ability to excel, excel in certain elements of what it takes to be an effective leader. But I think in kind of this, the common language you often hear is like, but we all can get better at being a leader. 
but I really think we can be. If I say, if I say, well, it's in my DNA, then basically I'm saying like, it was up to my grandparents whether or not I'd be a good leader. If I say it's all based upon how I was raised and I say, well, it's all up to my parents as to whether or not I was a good leader or whoever raised me. Well, I kind of say that both of those things certainly do influence you. I'm the youngest of five. There are certain things that, certain ways I look at the world that are through that lens. I wear those glasses um, at times. But if we leave it to our grandparents or whoever raised us to define what we're gonna be in life, we are taking all of our agency and giving it away. And I just don't believe in that. I think that all of us can be better leaders. And I think that the old, you know, it's, it's not a binary thing. I'm a great leader or I'm not a great leader. It's like, no, I'm a better version of myself today than I was yesterday or than I was two years ago or than I was five years ago. It's a journey. And the idea is to, to, to choose to take steps on that process wherever you are in your life. I think that's really critical. As far as people that I've been, you know, fortunate enough to interact with, yeah, I've been really fortunate. Um, some luck, some hard work, a little bit of mixture of everything, right, has, has put some great people in my path or vice versa. And I, I'm thinking about um, one particular lady, Ann Chow, who's the CEO of AT&T Business. And, and um, she's got 30,000 employees at AT&T Business uh, that report to her. She generates 25% of AT&T's revenue. And she said that when she was a little girl, um, her, she has a twin sister and they grew up in Chicago. And there was this moment where um, she went down to the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And she said she didn't come for much money. She wasn't dressed all that nice. But for some reason, somebody said, here, you stand out in front of the parade this day. And that was like a turning point in her life because all of a sudden she saw herself out in front of something. Mm. So I think we've got to like look for those moments to help other people get out in front of things or see people who don't necessarily see themselves and show them what they can do. And, you know, at that point, just get out of their way. Get out of your way. You can do a lot. And that's fascinating because in a way, like you said, that's a a trigger which is not a DNA it's not something from your family but it's it's triggers throughout your early life and, and throughout your life that that enable that yeah that the kind of trigger and I, I guess in brand speak you can call it the the kind of emotional shove you know you you just become emotionally changed and charged yeah mm -hmm. yeah and I think Simon I think there's I don't know. I jotted it down not that long ago, but I was trying to think like how many times in my career have been those somewhat defining moments. And the reality is there's probably like 10 of them in the last 30 mm. years. Mm. And, and, and none of them I saw coming. Yeah. I didn't see any of them coming. I have students at school that will say, you know, they'll, they'll get your resume or look at your LinkedIn profile or something and go, oh, Professor Ledden, can we have coffee? And I never pass up a cup of coffee. If they say want to grab a cup of coffee, I'm all in. <laughs> Anybody, any, any listener here, if you're ever in Nashville and you want a cup of coffee, I'm your guy. But as we're, as we're talking over coffee, the, the question comes out something like, I looked at your bio, you know, how do I get to where you are now? Type of conversation comes up. You know, what should be my 30 year plan? And, you know, it, it, you got to chuckle at it because one, it's like, I, 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 I thank you for even thinking that you want to be sitting where I'm at right now, right? So thank you for even introducing me to the, you know, the conversation. But I also say, have a conversation with a hundred other people and see what they have to say to you because everybody gives you autobiographical um, recommendations. They tell you what they would told themselves in the past. But more importantly than that is to recognize that my resume, it's the highlights uh, of, the, of the things that like the titles and the, and the specific you know, numbers of things we got across the finish line. All the learning is in the white space on that resume. <laughs> That's where I learned everything, right? And what I tell them is I say, you got to kind of like, yeah, it's good to plan. I, if you plan thinking you're going to get that 30-year plan to roll out the way you think it is, you're going to be sorely disappointed because there's a lot of other variables and influences thing. But the process of planning is valuable. The process of thinking about what do you care about and where do you want to be and maybe not you know, 30 years from now is fine, but 10 or five or whatever too. <laughs> you know, where do I want to go to? That process of planning is valuable, but the most value is actually that process. It's just thinking about it and thinking about what you value because here's the deal with what happens in your life and you gents know this you're going to hit lots of intersections in your life where you can go left or right or continue going forward. And it's in those moments that you make those pivots or choices or changes that are, are in the white space of the resume that oftentimes take you places you never thought you'd go. And you've got, if you're not open to those conversations, if you're not open to those situations you're, and you're saying, I'm on this plan, you're going to miss so many great things. I mean, it's kind of like you're, you're on the train going down the track and you're missing all the cool stuff whizzing by out the window. 
Talk about, Patrick, about right? learning, Patrick, and, you know, I'll give one quick, you know, analogy. And um, my uh, middle daughter was a, a college soccer player. And in the last regular season home game of her college career, um, she scored two goals on free kicks against Boston College. Wow. And it was one of those moments. I mean, the, the video highlights were, I mean, it was just incredible to, to see. But I, I happened to be there. And after the game, you know, one of the, her parents or teammates came up and said, oh, that was so cool. And she has a gift for that. And I thought, okay, well, well, maybe so. But I think something, some of it had to do with the 75 or 80 kicks after practice that she and her, one of her teammates would do and had been doing all season long. And so there, you talked about learning is in the white space and, and preparation is too. So I'd like to talk about the five-week leadership challenge and, and what you're doing with that. And it's, and it's an upcoming book. So I'd love for you to tell us how people can get it. And then give us a little, you've, you've given Simon and I a, a sort of an advanced peek at it, which is fascinating, but give us kind of an overview of what that really means, because it really is about preparation. I'm happy to do that. I do want to mention one thing about the soccer. Um, so I had a chance to work um, with Anson Dorans, who's the, uh, and I say work, we weren't side by side, but we were happy to be kind of connected on this one particular engagement. And Anson Dorans has been the UNC ladies, he was UNC uh, women's soccer coach for many, many years. And he talked about, uh, you know, Mia Hamm. Some people might know the name Mia Hamm, but mm. if you don't look her up. And he talked about like one time, like after practice, seeing her running uh, different exercises by herself on the field, covered in sweat and, you know, breathing heavy. And it was that extra effort that she was putting in. And it's kind of that, that whole thing, like you talk about, nobody saw the 80 kicks after practice every day. Nobody saw all those reps you take. And I would say it's what's really critical. And I've learned over time, before I jump into the book, is this importance of discipline. And, and it, you know, people don't like the term discipline. I don't necessarily like the term discipline because it sounds so like draconian and control oriented. But I had this friend, um, he's passed away, but he wrote a book called um, Principle-Centered Leadership many years ago. His name was Blaine Lee. And in, in his book, Blaine Lee talked, or actually in a conversation with Blaine, he was talking about discipline. And somebody that I was with that day said, what do you mean by discipline, Blaine? And he said that discipline is a consistent regimen that leads to freedom of action. Hmm. He said it's doing something consistently that gives you more choice in the future. And I love that example. He said when he was a kid, he, he, his parents wanted him to learn how to play the piano. He's like, I didn't really want to learn to play the piano. And I'm sure listeners are going, yeah, my parents wanted me to learn how to speak a language or my aunt wanted me to learn this or whatever it might be. And I didn't really want to do it. He said, but that consistent practice and preparation and you know, working as scales, working as lessons and in his mind's eye every day, the children, his friends were outside playing, but he was practicing. But over time, months and years of doing that, he became pretty good at that. Did he have some innate skills? Probably, but there were a lot of things he developed through discipline. So I oftentimes think about like, when does a consistent regimen lead you to freedom of action? I think Mike, you've run a marathon, haven't you? Mm -hmm. yeah. Or two. <laughs> or, or 10, I think it was, yeah. I heard, I heard or 10. Three or four. When I was, I was listening to a preview of the podcast. Uh, Ten, yeah. So I've run a few in my life, and the first one I ran was in the military. I had somebody um, ask me to run a marathon with them, and I kind of just said sure because I kind of have that mentality. If somebody says like, "Do you want to try this?" I'm like, "Yeah, let's go do it." Um, so I said sure, and we didn't run that many extra miles prepping for the marathon. But after work one day on a Friday, we went and we ran the marathon uh, in the town about nine hours from us. So we drove nine hours on a Friday night, stayed at a little motel, got up the next morning, we ran the marathon together. And our time was pretty good, at least for us, it was like three and a half, little near three and a half hours. So it was a pretty good pace. And the whole time we had a lot of freedom of action. We were joking and laughing and talking. And if there was water, we'd get water. If we needed to take a, uh, a restroom break, we could do that. I mean, we had that flexibility. So in that, in that situation, I think, okay, that's an example of consistent regimen, getting up every morning and doing physical exercise. Um, by the way, there's some factor for age in that <laughs> calculation. <laughs> Gave me lots of freedom of action. When I fast forward a number of years, um, I was not in the military anymore. And you, you all know when you hit those um, birth, you know, when you're growing up, and I don't know, Simon, what it is in, in, in London, but when you're growing up in the States, at least, it's like, okay, you're 10, you're double digits. And then you're 13, you're a teenager. And then you're 16 and you can drive. And you're 18, you can vote yeah. or whatever you yeah. do. And 21, something happens then, apparently. And then after that, it's like 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. It's just the fives and zeros. And they're less exciting for us. But I hit one of those milestone birthdays that ended in a five and zero. And I said, I'm going to run another marathon. I've been out of the army for years. You know, who cares if I get up and do exercise every morning? Nobody. But I decided I'm going to sign up for another marathon. And I find one at Walt Disney World, Florida. I'm like, 
happiest place on earth or whatever. You know, it should be great. And uh, I, I said to my wife, let's go. I'm going to go to Disney World, run a marathon. She said, great, let's take the kids. I tell the kids all they hear is we're getting to go to Disney World. And then I go to my computer and I build this great schedule of running this marathon. And then life kind of gets in the way. I don't have that consistent regimen. Like the kids are sick one night. So I get up in the middle of the night and help take care of them. Or my boss needs a report and I get that done earlier. I have to do, you know, all these great excuses to keep me from all valid, but great excuses. And then I get to the marathon. And then there's something that happens when you're standing, because I still, I signed up. I'm going to go do this thing. You're standing among 7,000 other people who have had a consistent regimen. You start to think, I've got this too. So I remember running that marathon that day and I get to the, get close to the first mile marker. And uh, unless you're like Mike and you're up front, you know, running with the world-class runners and you're back with me, you know, you're kind of moving along, talking, jogging, walking a little bit or whatever, try to get to that as everybody starts to narrow the, the field down and tighten up along the path. And I get toward the first mile marker and, you know, Disney does nothing small. So there's, there's uh, music playing at the first mile marker. There's Daisy Duck is, no, Minnie Mouse is dancing and people are high-fiving Minnie Mouse and everybody's fired up. Get to mile marker number two, music again. This time it's Chip and Dale, the two chipmunks, and I'm high-fiving both of them. <laughs> at some point when you're at like mile 10 or 12 or 14 or 16, right? If you haven't put in that consistent regimen, you don't care who the hell they shove in a costume. You just want them to get out of your way. You can't speed up. You can't slow down. You're in the death zone. So that would be an example to me of like the importance of making sure you're really consistent in things to give yourself tons of freedom. And the same thing is true. Like forget running a marathon. Just think like with your team at work, if you're consistently working on something together, doing your status updates, making progress on it, or consistently serving your customers and greeting everyone and following the standards, it gives you tremendous freedom of action later on mm -hmm. because those behaviors will get the outcomes you want. And then when the next project opportunity comes or a little bit extra funding is they're going to give it to your team because they trust your team is going to deliver on it. So you asked me about the book, Mike, that's an example of the book. The best way to tell you, that's an example. So the book is full of 35 different examples or stories like the one I just gave you there. But some are like, I, I've, I've had some real um, good times in my career. Like Simon mentioned, I met some really cool people. Um, there's a story in there about sharing the stage in um, Iceland with the prime minister of Iceland. Wow. And what I learned from working with her, I actually had a chance to go Iceland four, five different times and work with the permanent ministers of their government. I often go and do their leadership development work. And you know, sharing the stage with her, I watched her come in and how she interacted with people and how she was profound, but also very personable. And I use that as an example of like one day's lesson. Or uh, I hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro with my son and I use that as a day's lesson. And in that particular situation, I'm so task oriented and some people listening might be, I love my to-do list. I love checking stuff off my to-do list. And I was treating the mountain like a to-do list. In other words, every night, every night when I talk to our guides, I'm like, all right, how far are we going tomorrow? What's the, what's the change in altitude we're gonna do? And the guy's just like, stop worrying about that. Let's just take it one moment at a time. And so I talk in the book about the importance of enjoying the journey and are you enjoying the journey? too, because in the end, when I look back at pictures of Mount Kilimanjaro, yeah, I look at the ones where my son and I are standing at the top of the mountain, but I also look a lot at the pictures where we did things along the way. So you've got to like have that perspective. So the book is organized into these 35 daily readings. Each day has a reading, a set of questions to consider, and then a little challenge for the day. And the challenges are very small. They could be like, today's lesson was about this. Go find somebody who you know in your circle of people who have had a similar experience and ask them these two questions. So it's very doable type of challenge. And each week is organized into a theme. So the first week is perspective. What is the mindset of a leader? How do you think like a leader? And I lay out 10 different perspectives of a leader and then I give you different stories to kind of help you see that come to life. And they're not all good stories. I don't always end up on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. There's times where I fall in a creek with all my gear on in the military and all my soldiers watching me. And there's times where I should have dealt with this uh, an employee issue at our company and I didn't and guess what, it didn't get better. You know, so there's those type of things as well. But the first week's all about mindset. It teaches you 10 mindsets and it gives you a chance to assess yourself. The second week is all about purpose. Why do you even choose to lead? You know, Simon, you mentioned people that I've had a chance to work with over my career. And um, um, I do have a podcast. And on my podcast, I've had people like Patrick Lencioni. And he wrote a book not that long ago about motive. Like, what's your motive for leading? So I'm asking, like, why are you choosing to lead? What impact do you want to have? The third week is about um, priorities. What priorities do you want to set for yourself? And how do you do good, good goal setting work with your employees? The fourth week is around planning. How do you bring those to life? And then the fifth week is around performance. Like how do you actually get those things done? So I like alliterations. 
you all said you'd worked in marketing, as you might imagine, it's perspective, purpose, priorities, plan, and performance. Makes it easy for me to remember. I am a former infantry guy. And uh, every week is kind of laying it out for you. So that, that's the idea of the book. And um, right now it is in pre-order. That's fantastic. So people can get it at the Leden Group website? Yeah, you can get it if you go to um, the number five, five-week leadership challenge. You can get it there. And, or you can get it at Amazon or any other online. If you do get it like at Amazon, for example, still come to fiveweekleadershipchallenge.com, put in the information that says you bought the book and uh, we'll send you uh, a first few chapters so you can get going before it even comes out. We also give you a companion booklet that you can use to start completing um, that'll get you moving in the right direction. And I give you a free copy of another book I wrote about leadership. That's fantastic. You know, what I love about that, you know, Patrick, is really what you've set the stage for is something that I think is, is achievable. And one of the challenges with, with leadership is for some people, it can be so nebulous. Like, what does it really mean? I read a few books and then does that make me a leader? And I think what you've really put together with the five-week leadership challenge is a process that people can follow step-by-step step and, you know, and see the outcomes and, and results of that. So, well, Patrick, this has been a fantastic conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time and, you know, a big fan of, of the work that you do. And, and I believe that, you know, you're one of those people that are, you know, that are a multiplier, you know, the effect that you have, you may not necessarily directly see it, but people will read things that you write and they'll follow, you know, the, the steps that you outline in, in courses and things like that. And the impact that they have carries forward. So, you know, on behalf of all of those, of, of those unseen people, I want to thank you for that. And, and also thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. And I really appreciate those words. They're not lost on me. It's, 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 uh, you mentioned humility and, and it's, it really isn't about me. It's just, I just have these thoughts for whatever reason they come into my mind and I've had these great opportunities and I just don't want to sit on them. I want to share and let people figure out how yeah. to use them best. I have about, I've been writing on LinkedIn for years and I have just went over 102,000 followers the other day. And uh, I don't know why that's a milestone in my head, but it's stuck in my head. And part of it is like, just every once in a while, I'll get a note from somebody, they'll send me a message. It's like, hey, I used that idea with the team or that video you put out, I used it with the team. And to me, that just like fuels you to keep going, right? No, it's fascinating. And I love, uh, you know, I've embraced the chat, Patrick, and, and, and everything you've said, I've agreed with. It's, it, it, you know, it's truly embracing. I love the storytelling piece. And I think for the listener, that association is so important, yeah? And, and you're expose that you've already given us, um, you know, the forward and the different kind of pieces and, and structure that you brought to it just makes some sense, yeah? So um, I, I, I truly appreciate it. No, I really appreciate it, gents. Thank you so much. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.